0: My name's Richard Haney, and every once in a while I get this lofty title called Missiologist in Residence, which I'm always afraid creates high expectations. <laughs> I'm a uh, mission partner. Uh, I serve with Frontier Fellowship, which is a mission agency mobilizing Western Christians to be involved with what God is doing in faraway places on the frontier. We actually have produced an Advent devotional, uh, which we try to do every year. And there are a number of them available today if you want to take one, or you can get an electronic version from our website. We are in the last of a sermon series on stewardship called Entrusted. It's my privilege to uh, to bring you this final sermon in the series on stewarding the gospel. We have studied what does it mean to be stewards of the good earth, of our gifts and talents, our wealth our vocations, and now we're thinking about the gospel. How are we stewards of the gospel? And we're going to look at uh, two passages from the Apostle Paul. They're, They're pretty long. They're in your bulletin. I invite you to look at those or open your Bible to Romans 1 and 2 Timothy 1 and listen to God's Word. First from Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the Spirit of Holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then at verse 14, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Then our second text from uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. "'Not because of anything we have done, "'but because of His own purpose and grace. "'This grace was given us in Christ Jesus "'before the beginning of time, "'but it has now been revealed "'through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, "'who has destroyed death "'and brought life and immortality "'to light through the gospel. "'And of this gospel, "'I was appointed a herald "'and an apostle and a teacher. "'That is why I am suffering as I am. "'Yet this is no cause for shame.' because I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, Timothy, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This is the word of the Lord. Let me tell you a story. I have a friend, I'm going to call him Hosni, whom I met in 2015 when he was a pastor of a large Arabic-speaking international church in this Middle Eastern city. And I remember at the time he said, you know, I'm having trouble doing my pastoral work and keeping up with all the visitors who are knocking on my door, secretly, quietly, Muslims who are asking me, tell me about Jesus. Now, that was 2015. I saw him in 2017, and he had already transitioned out of his pastor job and into full-time receiving visitors and answering their questions. And then I saw him again in September, and I met with him and his wife and about 25 former Muslims, now Christians, in a house church. And what would happen is a man or a woman would have a dream, and in the dream, a man in a white robe would say, my name is Esau, Jesus, come and follow me. And sometimes in the dream, they would even mention Hosni, and people would make a beeline quietly to ask him questions. So what do you think Hosni said to these people who had a dream about Jesus and said, what do I do? He told them the gospel. He spoke to them about good news. He told them the Jesus story, including the Son of God part, the crucified, dead, and buried part, and on the third day, He rose again from the dead part. Dangerous words to say, dangerous words to hear in some parts of the world today. Because if you're a Muslim, in many countries you have an identity card that says Muslim it's against the law to change that. So, Hosni told them the gospel. What, what is the gospel? That's our first question today. Before we can ask how do we steward the gospel, we've got to ask what, what exactly is the gospel? It's a big word. It's a thick word with layers of meaning, but literally, it's a very simple definition. The New Testament word is euangelion. The EU prefix means Good like in our word eulogy, good word. And the Angalian part means message. We get our word angel from it, An angel is a messenger. The gospel literally is the good message, though we often say is the good news, because in the ancient world, euangelion often referred to an announcement of a victory. You remember the Battle of Marathon? I mean, not literally, of course, but you remember reading about the Battle of Marathon the Greeks defeated the Persians at Marathon, and they sent a runner, according to legend, who went all the way from Marathon to Athens, 25 miles, hence our Marathon. And the good news, he delivered, and then he died of exhaustion. So, it wasn't good news to him, but it was a good news message for them. So, the gospel is the good news, or a good message. And when Paul and the other New Testament writers write about it, they… they give content to that good news, and it's the story of Jesus, often the core elements of what Jesus did. He died for our sins. He rose in victory. He promises to come again. And we read about the Jesus story in four little books called The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not biographies, but good news stories about a man named Jesus. But there's more. Sometimes the word gospel is shorthand for Christianity, the Christian faith, the Christian tradition, the whole nine yards. But even this doesn't quite get at the whole thing because if you think the good news is a list of propositions or a set of ideas, we've, we've reduced it. Because the good news is news, and it's about a person And ultimately, our faith is not in good news, it's in Jesus, but the good news tells us about Jesus. It leads us to faith and helps us receive grace. So, how do we steward the gospel? What does that mean? Here we're going to ask Paul to help us. Paul wrote those personal letters to Timothy and Titus and Philemon, and in 2 Timothy, If you read through the whole thing, you get to the end, and Paul says, you know, the end is near. I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. He's probably in Rome. He's in prison again, this time not so much under house arrest, but really in prison. And he writes to Timothy, he's he's passing on the mantle. He knows that his days are short. And Timothy evidently is timid, sickly, lacks courage. And Paul is, is giving him a boost. You can just kind of see Paul patting him on the back or maybe pushing him on the rear <laughs> to get with it. And he's sending Timothy back to Ephesus, and there are heresies and false teachers in Ephesus. And you just kind of get the sense that Timothy says, Oh. And Paul says, Come on, Timothy, you, you can do it. And what does he say to Timothy? Three things that we want to look at today. He says, Timothy, trust in the gospel and guard the gospel, and most important, proclaim it, share it, tell it to others. So, let's look at these, this message from Paul to Timothy under these three headings. The first one is trust in the gospel. This is a hard one for me to, uh, to put into a few words because Paul says quite a few things. He says, don't be ashamed, be courageous. You are uh, a believer in this gospel just as I am. But I think what he's really trying to say to Timothy is be confident in this gospel. You've received it, believe it, embrace it. I am reminded of your sincere faith that was in your mother and in your grandmother and in you. Like many of us, Timothy gets his faith introduced to him from his family. And Paul says it lives in you. He doesn't doesn't say you had it once. He said it's alive in you right now. Rekindle the gift, the gift of teaching, the gift of preaching, so you can carry on. Makes sense, doesn't it, that we can't pass anything on that we first don't have ourselves. And Paul, I think, is saying to Timothy, the gospel has shaped you. It has identified you and me. And so, hang on to that. Claim that. Here's a question for you. Does the gospel identify you? All of us have multiple identities. I'm a a son, a father, a brother, a nephew, an uncle, a Tar Heel, (laughs) a fly fisherman, a missiologist, and I'm a Christian. And I hope my Christian identity gets up there into first place, and is not an also-ran thought. Paul says further to Timothy, don't be embarrassed, don't be ashamed, join me in suffering for the gospel. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say, join me in suffering for the gospel? Because he knows for Timothy and even for himself that when there's opposition to Christianity, when we are outnumbered, when people are making fun of Christians, it can be easy to be anxious, fearful, even ashamed. I don't know if I've told this story here before or not, but I met this young couple in… I met them in the Middle East. They're from Uzbekistan, and uh, Donald Marsden, my colleague, was translating for us. Pam and I were talking to this young couple, and really, the woman was talking to Pam, and we were overhearing it. And she said, you know my son, who is 15, has just won the math prize in the local high school. And that means he gets to go to the governor's school, except the authorities came and they said, well, you all are Christians, aren't you? Your son is not going to the governor's school. Subtle pressure, persecution, because they're identified with Jesus Christ, and everybody knows it. But you know, it's easier… it's not easy, but it's easier… To claim that identity if there are others that claim the identity with us, right? If you're not alone, if you have brothers and sisters in church, in your parish group, in your Bible study, it's a little easier to hang on to your identity. This is why community is so important. Uh, I have a friend who's written a book on the church and he says you need big church and little church. You need big church and you need parish group, Bible study home fellowships. You need both to help you grow in your faith and in your confidence in the gospel. So, first thing Paul says, trust in the gospel. Have confidence in it. Second thing he says is safeguard the gospel. Hold to that standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you. So we remember that the gospel is God's gospel. It's God's good news. It's not ours, right? He's entrusted it to us, but it's not ours. And because it's not our message, we're not free to change it. We're not free to tamper with it, to water it down, to make it more attractive or less demanding. Like Timothy, we treasure it and guard it. Timothy was going to Ephesus. If you read about The first time they went to Ephesus in the book of Acts, there was Demetrius, a silversmith, and they were selling idols. And so maybe there's still idol worship going on in Ephesus. The gospel is about Jesus, not about idols. As you look through church history, you see lots of counterfeits to the gospel, Gnosticism and Arianism, et cetera, all those isms. How about today? Are there distortions of the gospel today? Are there counterfeits? Are there reductions? You know, preachers and teachers sometimes accommodate the gospel to the spirit of the age. They do it on the left, and they do it on the right. There are progressive heresies, and there are conservative heresies. We had lots of time. I'd, and if I was bolder, I'd give you examples. <laughs> <laughs> but there's always that... Temptation to smooth the rough edges, make the gospel seem a little more palatable, or to overprotect the message and make the gospel a little more rigid. None of us has our theology perfectly aligned with Scripture and the Spirit, not even your pastors. We all see through a glass darkly. We try to measure what we say and teach with the Scripture but we're all trying to get it as clear as possible. This is why we need Christians from other parts of the world who see Jesus and the gospel from a little different angle, and their angle can help correct our angle if we get a little bit out of alignment. Safeguard the gospel, Timothy. Treasure it. Let me leave you with that thought. Do you, do you treasure the gospel? You know, we don't, we don't worship the Bible but we respect the Bible. We don't worship the gospel, we worship Jesus of the gospel, but we treasure the gospel because it's the good news about Jesus handed down from one generation to another. Finally, Paul says, proclaim the gospel. Pass it down to the next generation, pass it on to your neighbors far and near. Remember, here's what he said to Timothy, For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. Paul had commissioned, ordained Timothy to be a minister and evangelist, and he's reminding him, Timothy, pass it on and pass it down. Good news is for sharing and stewarding the gospel needs we pass it down to the next generation. Teach your children and your grandchildren. There's a great passage, I'm sure you've heard of this in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 11. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you are at home and when you are away and when you lie down and when you rise. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Teach the truths of God to your children all the time, coming, going, in school, at home. It's good advice, isn't it? Parents are the first Christian educators. Our Sunday school is secondary. It's not their responsibility. We don't just drop our kids off, we bring our kids for extra teaching and education. I heard an interview once with a man named Dana Joya, who at the time was head of the National Endowment for the Arts and a poet. And it was, a, it was an interview, a Mars Hill Audio interview about reading, because there was a new reading report about Americans' reading habits, and Dana Joya said there are three predictors of whether kids will learn to become readers. Do you, do you want to know this? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> the first one is, do you read to your children? If parents read to their children, that's a predictor kids will learn to read. Second one is, kids see their parents reading. And the third one is, there are books in the home. This is why I tell my wife, yes, I need more books. Because <laughs> the grandkids might visit. <laughs> now, now make the jump, okay, for Christian education in the next generation. We read the Bible and pray with our kids. Our kids see us praying, reading the Bible, spiritual disciplines. And there are resources available. There are Bibles. There's worship I had a friend, um, Dan Jessen, who was uh, he's a professor of youth and family ministry at Gordon-Conwell. And I got to know him later after I left seminary. And I, and I had him once come to Swift Creek when I was a the pastor there. And I, he, he gave these hints to parents. And there are two things that just smacked Pam and me in the, in the face. One, he said, pray for your kids And pray for your kids' friends. In other words, pray that your kids will have healthy friendships. And we just took that to heart. We prayed for our kids' friends all the way through college. And then the other thing he said was, seek out adult Christian friends for your kids. So your kids have other role models. They know other adult Christians and think it's normal. It's not just something the parents have. Those two things have always helped me. I have a young friend I met in Mongolia a couple years ago, and I, I saw her and her husband uh, last year when I was there. Hunger's all is her, her name. She was a brilliant physics student. She's the best translator when people who speak English come to Mongolia. And she and I were at a break during a conference, and she said, you know, it's hard being a first-generation Christian and raising kids. Because there are things that we don't know what to do. And we can't ask our parents because our parents aren't Christian. We can't really ask you, our missionary friends, because you're not Mongolian. You don't understand the culture. They don't understand the Scriptures. And so we're kind of, we're kind of figuring it out for ourselves as a first-generation Christian. And so I, I, I try to pray for them every once in a while. They don't have the advantages we do of Christian parents, grandparents, second-generation, third-generation. Finally, Paul says to Timothy, pass on the gospel to your neighbors. Here's Second Timothy chapter 2. I've gone a little bit further in the text. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me through many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. The gospel has been given to us. Paul says to Timothy… Be sure to pass it on. You remember the Romans passage I read before the Second Timothy 1? It's a great line there where Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, to Gentiles and Jews. Now, the, our text read it obligation, but it actually literally says, I'm a debtor. And I actually understood this passage for the first time when I heard John Stott teach it at Urbana 1979, a long time ago, when he spoke on Romans. And he said… What does it mean that you're in debt? Well, the obvious meaning is that you owe somebody money, right? You borrowed money and now you owe it. But he said there's a second way you can be in debt. Somebody hands you something and says, would you deliver this to my friend in North Carolina? And until… if you receive it, until you discharge that obligation, until you hand it to that person, you're in debt to the person who is waiting for the gift. Do, do you see that? Paul says we're under obligation both to Greeks, non-religious people, and Jews, religious people, until we hand the gospel to them. God has trusted us with the gospel, and now we're in debt to those who have not heard. I could talk for a long time about those who have not heard. That's what I think about every day. One out of every three people on earth has no access to the gospel. They haven't heard, and there's nobody in their neck of the woods telling them in their language, one out of every three. Here's a strange statistic, but a true one. 87% of Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists, ready? 87% of all Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists don't know a Christian personally. So, what's the problem? Contact. Contact. Stewarding the gospel by meeting people who have not yet heard it. So, like Paul, we need to see ourselves kind of in this light as debtors to those whom we love but have not reached with good news. Evangelism, same word, euangelion, gospel, gospel work, means announcing good news. Announcing. Words are important. They can hurt, they can heal, they can sting, they can soothe. Teaching our children that we love them unconditionally is gospel language. They need to hear it. But evangelism also means being good news, helping, kindness, hospitality. You know, at this time of year, Angel Tree, Salvation Army, Christmas Mother, it's all around us, right? And the church and the world leaps into the business of helping. But we need to help all year long because people need love all year round. Good deeds, good words, good gifts. Now I can imagine that somebody's thinking, yes, but Paul was writing to Timothy. Paul was an apostle. Timothy was an evangelist. I'm a normal person. What does this have to do with me? We're all called to be witnesses. We didn't didn't read Luke, we didn't read the book of Acts, but Acts chapter 1. Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll have power to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the edge of the earth, ends of the earth, we're all called to be witnesses. There's somebody that might not hear the gospel because you don't tell it to them, and you're the person. You're the one they trust. You're the one they know. So, practical steps. What can we do? Um, know the Scriptures. Know the gospel be part of a gospel community that encourages one another, appreciate the need for witness. One out of every three people on earth have not heard the good news. 26% of Americans say they're a nun. What's your religious preference? None. 26% of all Americans. It was 17% 10 years ago, 40% of all millennials. I'm a nun. So we have work to do right here Learn to bear witness. Uh, Derek and others can teach you how to share your faith, and testimony is particularly important. You can always tell your story. Recognize the importance of hospitality and pray for those who are least reached. I want to end with a story. Um, my good friend Scott used to teach at Fuller Seminary, and now he's at Gordon-Conwell, While he was at Fuller, he researched a book on the church called Why Church, and he visited 40 churches in the Los Angeles area. Must have been mind-blowing. And a lot of churches in the Los Angeles area are very interesting churches. And he said, one Sunday we went to this church, it was all young people, everybody in their 20s. He said, the oldest person I saw was maybe 35. It was big, it was in a warehouse, had a great band. And the pastor called a young woman up to give a testimony, a woman named Mary, And Mary told a story about her drama class. She was a a first-year student at UCLA, and she was taking drama. And the professor said, I want you to do something extreme and present it in class. Now that's a dangerous thing to say to 18 and (laughs) 19-year-olds, do something extreme. She decided she would compose a love song to Jesus and sing it in class, wow. So the day came for her presentation. She and another young lady were going last, the other woman went first, her name was Alice. She got up in class, pulled out a Bible, and said, come on outside with me, and she went to a trash can, and she read all those Old Testament judgment parts, you know, the imprecatory psalms about little ones, and the judgment on Israel, and the judgment on the Amalekites. And Every time she would read it, she said, I don't believe in a God like this, and she would tear out the page, she would burn it, and put it in the trash can. Whoa. Mary's thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm next. (laughs) They go back into class. Mary pulls out her guitar, takes a really deep breath, says a prayer under her breath, and sings this love song to Jesus. The place was silent. Nobody spoke. Everybody filed out in silence. Mary's kind of wondering, what do they think? Everybody filed out except Alice, who came up to her with tears in her eyes, saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I I want to believe in a God like that, not in the God that I talked about. Will you help me? And Mary helped her. And she became a follower of Jesus. And Mary said, she's given a testimony in church. She says, do you want to meet Alice? And the crowd roared. And Alice came up and they embraced. And the place went crazy. And the pastor came up and said, Alice, welcome to the family. Friends, there's power in testimony, there's power in community, there's power in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us. We need courage just like Timothy needed courage. Give us courage to be your disciples who bear witness. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.